Hello, we are Mark and Katie Steed, and we have actually locked ourselves into a closet, <laughs> and we've got our cell phone here, and we're going to do our best to make a great podcast for you right now. The dog is babysitting. Yeah, we've got our oldest downstairs babysitting, so don't worry about the kids. We are looking forward to discussing the book of Ether with you today, and particularly the chapters 12 through 15 in the book of Ether. Uh, before we get started, to let you know a little bit about us, we have been married for 14 years. We have five children, four girls and one boy. I am a neuropsychologist at the Utah State Hospital, and Katie has worked for the last two years as the Disabilities Specialist Manager for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Prior to that, she was a professor of education at BYU for 15 years. We are excited to announce that Katie has just released her first book, Promises I Make When I Am Baptized at Eight. Thanks. Now let's get into a review of Ether. I always like to anchor myself in what is going on and what exactly we are talking about. The people, the places, and so forth. So let's take a moment and do a quick review of what has brought us to where we are in our study of Ether. As you're completing the book, your study of the book of Ether, we want to invite you to take a short quiz to help remind you what it is that we're talking about, back where it all began. We'll ask just three simple questions. Feel free to answer them in your own way. First, what were the original plates called before they became the Book of Ether? Second, who abridged these plates? Third, what occurred to cause the people in these plates to be scattered? Let's see what you've learned. What were the original plates called before they became the Book of Ether? They were known as the Jaredite plates. Who abridged these plates? Moroni. What occurred to cause the people in these plates to be scattered? The Tower of Babel. So we know that the 24 gold plates that constitute the Book of Ether was abridged by Moroni. Our studies in the beginning of Ether gave us the beautiful story of the brother of Jared, his humility and faith to seek the Lord, to ask the Lord to not confound their language, and the result was that the Lord not only did not confound their language, but he sent them to a promised land. I have to pause and point out something new I learned in my time of studying this story of the brother of Jared this time around. I love this story. Mm. I loved it as a child when we learned about the brother of Jared's faith, that he could see the finger of God. I still remember a primary teacher holding up this drawing of the finger of God coming out of the clouds mm, and thinking that was amazing. Yeah. That was just amazing. Such a beautiful story of faith, that alone. And mm -hmm. that's a story we love. Then I remember learning in my 20s as I studied this story more that I realized that there was actually another question beyond just how will we have light? In, in these barges. But the brother of Jared, even before he asked about light, he, he said to the Lord, how will we have air? And we read that about that in Ether chapter two. And what I think is so incredible is how he answered these two questions. Because when the question was about something that might be a less essential than air, but when it was about light, we know that God said, Go and figure it out and come back to me and I'll and, and we can work on it from there. And that's a that's a wonderful thing to, to understand. Mm. But when it was air, 
God actually immediately answered the brother of Jared. He immediately said, this is what you're going to do to have air. And I've always gained a lot of comfort in this story that if something truly is air or critically vital in my life, God will answer right away. And if I'm not getting those immediate answers I feel like I should have, it just might be because it may not be as intensive a situation as I feel like it currently is. Mm. I think Elder Scott does a wonderful job of explaining this. He says, when we explain a problem and a proposed solution, sometimes he answers yes, sometimes no. Often he withholds an answer, not for lack of concern, but because he loves us perfectly. He wants us to apply truths he has given us. For us to grow, we need to trust our ability to make correct decisions. We need to do what we feel is right. In time, he will answer. He will not fail us. When he answers yes, it is to give us confidence. When he answers no, it is to prevent error. When he withholds an answer, it is to have us grow through faith in him, obedience to his commandments, and a willingness to act on truth. We are accepted expected to assume accountability by acting on a decision that is consistent with his teachings without prior confirmation. We are not to sit passively waiting or to murmur because the Lord has not spoken. We are to act. Mm. I love that quote. Yeah, me too. So all of this is amazingly insightful and helpful. And then yet a new lesson was pointed out to me this time around, <laughs> even beyond those two that I was always, have always been so powerful. This can be found in Ether chapter six. Another question the brother of Jared had was he didn't know how he was going to steer these yeah. barges. And guess what? The Lord never gave him a way to steer beyond that he told him he would that he would be in the wind. Yeah, that's a that's a good observation. And you know, John Tanner does an excellent job of explaining this in a talk that he gave at BYU as part of university conference back in 2009. Quote, The Lord's response to the third problem, whither shall we steer, is the least commented upon and the most enigmatic in the narrative. How do the Jaredites steer the barges? For that matter, how do they keep eight barges together across a vast ocean? And even if they could steer the flotilla, how do they know whither lies the promised land? The answer to this third problem is that they are required simply to get aboard of their vessels or barges, set forth into the sea, and commend themselves unto the Lord their God. Then they let the waves and the winds which have gone forth out of my mouth do the rest. Their voyage requires a leap of faith if ever there was one. Nephi steers his ship. The intrepid Jaredites, by contrast, trust themselves to the furious wind, mountain waves, and terrible tempests, and this for 344 days, all the while singing praises and thanking God day and night and trusting to his tender mercies over them. Few scriptural examples of trusting God surpass that of the Jaredites. The Jaredites learn that God is in the storms, just as he is in the stones. Perhaps the most evocative verse in this account is this, and it came to pass that the wind did never cease to blow toward the promised land while they were upon the waters. 
Likewise, the winds and storms in our lives can waft us to the promised land if we trust in God when he asks us to set forth our vessel into the sea. Such an incredible insight. And I love that it was still a tempest and a toss of those barges in in that time. It wasn't just necessarily a peaceful, lovely journey, right? Mm -hmm. Such a reminder for our own lives. John Tanner continues to share about this idea from, from the brother of Jared. And he says, in the epilogue to her beautiful book, My Grandfather's Blessing, Rachel Naomi Remen, who is not a Latter-day Saint, cites the Jaredites' exodus as a symbol for how to face uncertainty. She calls attention to the symbolism of stones touched by God and winds that blow towards the promised land. Rimen writes of the stones, This image of a people sailing through the heavy seas, staring only by the light that the touch of God kindles in their souls, is a, partic- is a particularly beautiful one for me. Likewise, Rimen writes of the wind, Having accompanied many people as they deal with the unknown, I find that the most moving part of the Mormon Exodus story is a single line, Despite the challenges and great difficulties of this sea journey, the wind, and it's quote, the wind always blows in the direction of the promised land. And then she continues, I have seen many people spread their sails and catch this wind. You know, this reminds me of a a story. Do you remember about five years ago when we were asked to direct a study abroad for China? In China for BYU? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do. So things were falling into place, and, uh, and except for one major detail. And that was, <laughs> what were we going to do with our home for the 16 weeks that we were going to be gone? Yep. We did not know. <laughs> no. Okay. So Katie and I were prayerful as we tried to come up with a solution of what to do with our home. We thought about listing it as a rental in the classifieds. We tried to see if a relative may want to live here seemed that any path we went down never quite felt right. So here we were, ready to dedicate our time to serving God in China through this BYU program and still not having this major detail figured out. Well, one night we found ourselves on a date eating at a restaurant that we had spontaneously picked. Just as a side, we've never dined there before, nor have we been back since. And it was a good restaurant. It was I'm, good, We yeah. should go back. <laughs> it's just we had, It's just circumstance. Yep. But while we were sitting there at the table, I noticed a young couple sitting next to us. I turned to Katie and subtly pointed to the word the couple next to us and said, I think they want to rent our house. <laughs> I <I'll> remember sp- <laughs> when you said that. I thought, you're crazy. Yeah. I'll spare you the details, but we a conversation was started with this young couple. It turns out that they were looking for a housing solution during the exact time frame we would be in China, almost to the date. This delightful couple became the caretakers of our home while our family lived abroad. That was an incredible time. And we were. We were led we were led by God. Yeah. And that's just one of the beautiful lessons to be learned in Ether. You know, and now we find ourselves in Ether chapter twelve, right? And we have a prophet. His name is Ether. And we read in the introduction of Ether, chapter twelve, that Ether is a righteous man and he exhorts his people to believe in God. Ether also reminds the people of the critical role that hope plays in their lives. As he says, hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men. I love that idea that hope is an, is an anchor to the souls of men. I, like, I noticed in the manual that it points out what happens to a boat that has no anchor. 
And what does happen? You know, it, it, it can't stand. It can't be still. It can't. It flounders on the ocean. Right. And then the question that the manual asks is, what about us when we have no hope? Remember that our hope is like an anchor to our souls. You know, just this morning, I was sitting with the kids at breakfast and I was asking them about this idea of hope that we read about in Ether chapter 12. And so I said to the kids, I said, what do you hope for? And our son, David, immediately said, a baby Yoda Christmas sweater. (laughs) (laughs) So we know he at least understands the concept of hope. He's hoping for a baby Yoda Christmas sweater. You did not hear that wrong. Um, But then our nine-year-old, Vivian, she said something that she hoped for. She said that she hoped that the coronavirus will end. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very tender. I then asked um, Vivian, I said, what does it mean to hope for something? And I was astounded by what she said. She said, to hope for something means you expect it to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And then she went on and she said, some of my friends say, quote, coronavirus will never end. When they say that, they don't have hope. But if you have hope that the coronavirus will end, then you're expecting that it will end. Sometimes she's wise beyond her years. That's a great, great answer. You know, it reminds me that in chapter six of the Preach My Gospel manual, we read, quote, hope is an abiding trust that the Lord will fulfill his promises to you. It is manifest in confidence, optimism, enthusiasm, and patient perseverance. It is believing and expecting that something will occur. When you have hope, you work through trials and difficulties with the confidence and assurance that all things will work together for your good. Hope helps you conquer discouragement. Oh, how true that is. And how much we need hope right now, right? Yeah. We then see this great link that hope and faith have with one another as Moroni recounts uh, the wonders done by faith. So the first place that we find this is in Ether chapter 12, verse 6, where we get the great testimony and definition of faith from Moroni. Chapter 6. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 6, excuse me, reads in part, Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Moroni then continues to teach about faith by recounting various historical examples. If we skip down to verse 13, he recounts the the story of Alma and Amulek and how their faith caused the prison walls to tumble. We also read about Nephi and Lehi's faith and how they wrought change upon the Lamanites. We also read about Ammon and his brethren laboring among the Lamanites and the success that they had because of their faith. And in verse 16 we read, All they who have miracles wrought them by faith. I love that grounding in faith. Then in verse 20 we are reminded of how faith enabled the brother of Jared to see Christ. All of these examples are reminders of what comes when someone practices faith. Clearly, Moroni understands the powerful teaching tool that stories are to help us better understand the topic. I particularly like the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal. It always strengthens my faith because it reminds me 
of how Elijah acted in confidence, uh, having faith that the Lord would manifest himself as the true and living God that the people of Israel should follow. You remember that story, right? Where the priests of Baal were gathered together to offer a sacrifice unto their God, and Elijah had his sacrifice. And the challenge was, whoever's God consumed the sacrifice would be the God that Israel would follow. And the priests of Baal went first, and they were weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, but nothing happened. And then Elijah doused all of the sacrifices in water and someone made a, an offering to God and God consumed not only Elijah's offering but that of the priests of Baal and made it so clear uh, who, who the God is that Israel should have followed. And I just love the recounting of, of, of Elijah in that story because he has a confidence that comes from faith. And that's a nice reminder to me that when you have faith, you can have confidence. Even when the odds seem against you or it seems like you're in an unpredictable situation, there's, there's a grounding that comes from that faith. I see the joy in your face as you recount that story. I can yeah. tell that that's, yeah. that's a story that anchors you in your faith. We start to, to move on in Ether chapter 12, which Ether chapter 12 is just full of beautiful, amazing stories and insights. I, I, I love this chapter for so many reasons. We, as we move on, we're in verse 24 now, and Moroni begins to speak of his weakness in writing. And something that um, stood out to me this time as I was studying it is, is something I hadn't really n- thought too much about before, is, is that Moroni actually does a comparison, mm. and he compares himself to the brother of Jared. And we know that comparisons don't help, right? But he, he says... Um, Ether chapter 12, verse 24. And thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. So mm-hmm. there's that comparison. For thou madest him that, he, that the things which he wrote were mighty, even as thou art unto the overpowering of man to read them. Thou hast also made our words powerful and great, even that we cannot write them. So he goes on and he has this comparison here. And um, the manual points out, you know, like it, it's not helpful to compare. That, that doesn't get you anywhere. Um, and, and we know that. We know that comparing ourselves to others, especially comparing ourselves to other strengths, is not something that's going to be helpful for us. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that story about Lucy and Miss Amber? I do. I do remember <laughs> that story. Um, several years ago, our daughter, um, she's 13 now, but she was, our daughter, Lucy was about three years old and Lucy loves to dance. She's always loved to dance. It's, I asked her one time, what was her, when she was three years old, I asked her what was her favorite place to be? And she said, dancing on the stage. So (laughs) this girl loves to dance and and it started young and she took dance at first from Miss Amber. And Miss Amber holds a special place in all of our hearts in the Steed home because mm-hmm. she was an amazing dance teacher for Lucy. And Lucy loved to dance. And when she would come home, we would dance together from da- after dance class because she just was always dancing and loving it. One day I was dancing with Lucy and I asked Lucy, I said, am I as good of a dancer as Miss Amber? Kind of hoping that maybe... She still had a little bit of a oddness for me mm-hmm, in life mm-hmm. that she was still young enough to not quite realize the flaws <laughs> of her mother. 
But Lucy looked up at me and with all the innocence of a three-year-old, and she said, um, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I later told her teacher, Miss Amber, about this conversation, and I loved Miss Amber's response. She looked at me and said, well, Miss Amber has spent a lot of hours working on her dance moves. There's just something to be said about being willing to put in the hours to become what we desire and certainly not judging ourselves based upon another strength, particularly mm. when they have likely spent countless more hours than we have perfecting their skills. Yeah. yeah this reminds me of Elder Whiting. He gave a, uh, of the 70, he gave an address in the, in the October 2020 conference where he quotes uh, another pastor, Charles M. Sheldon, who said, Quote, our Christianity loves its ease and comfort too well to take up anything so rough and heavy as a cross. Close mm. quote. Elder Whiting continues, quote, let us consider how to begin a thoughtful, deliberate, and intentional pursuit of embodying the very attributes of Jesus Christ. It is vital that we also ask our loving Heavenly Father what we are in need of and where we should focus our efforts. He has a perfect view of us and will lovingly show us our weakness. It may be helpful to honestly complete the Christ-like attribute activity in chapter 6 of Preach My Gospel, close quote. You know, you were talking about this quote to me, um, with me earlier. And so I went and looked at this in, in chapter 6 of Preach My Gospel, this attribute activity. And it's really a, a nice exercise. Um, it, it goes through different attributes of Christ, things like faith and hope charity, love, virtue, and there's several listed. And what's really great about it is it gives you kind of this little Likert scale here, like one, never, two, sometimes, three, often, four, almost always, five, always. And it asks you questions. So for example, under faith, the first question, I believe in Christ and accept him as my savior. And it even gives you a scripture to go and read and ponder upon. And then you can rate yourself. Where are you at right now with that? Is that an always, an almost always, a never? Where is that at? Mm. Under hope, an example there, one of my greatest desires is to inherit eternal life in the celestial kingdom of God. And again, there's a scripture to ponder with and then to rate yourself and then to kind of start to identify attributes that that you could work on as as elder. um, Oh, I'm just forgetting. Whiting. Can, had had taught us there that we can always improve and we can always become more like Christ. Yeah, it's nice to have, it's nice to know what is the next step or the next mm. thing to work on. So, you know, that raises the question, why do we do this? Well, Elder Whiting promises us, he quote, truly there is no other way to heal the wounds of broken relationships or of a fractured society than for each of us to more fully emulate the Prince of Peace. The commandment to be like him is not intended to make you feel guilty, unworthy, or unloved. Our entire mortal experience is about progression, trying, failing, and succeeding. Close quote. Our entire mortal experience is about progression, trying, failing, and succeeding. You know, that makes me think of as a family, we really like to hike. Mm. Well, we like to hike. Yeah, that's, um, that's more accurate. <laughs> sometimes we drag our kids along, and sometimes they love it, and sometimes they downright hate it. We set a goal as a family to hike to the top of Squaw Peak this summer. For those of you not familiar with this trail in, in Provo, 
Um, it's just over seven miles round trip. And according to a popular website on hiking, the description for this particular hike reads, quote, the trail is not for the week as it steeply gains close to 3,000 feet in just three and a half miles. Needless to say, there was much weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth both in the training for this hike and during the actual hike itself. However, whenever we hike in the midst of all the whining and complaining as we try to achieve our next height, we always tell our kids, you can do hard things. That's right. Elder Whiting continues, you are good enough. You are loved, but that does not mean that you are yet complete. There is work to be done in this life and the next. Only with his divine help can we all progress toward becoming like him. We are not complete, mm. but we've got this. We say that to our kids a lot. We've got this. I need to say it to myself probably more. And we can do hard things. And as Elder Whiting shares, our entire mortal experience is about progression, trying, failing, and succeeding. Yeah. I'm reminded of that that link of, of things in Ether chapter 12, verse 27. We know this verse very well. Um, we you know how it talks about how our weaknesses can become strong. I'll just read that. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble, humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Such a great scripture. Yes. You know, for a few years, I was a reading tutor at the MTC. This was when I was still single mm -hmm. before I, I met my husband. Um, and this scripture was actually a gentle reminder that we would share with the missionaries. So we had missionaries that um, some of them were even reading at like a second grade reading level. And they were trying to be a missionary and, and share the Book of Mormon. And it was a difficult text for them to understand. So we would tutor them and help them become better at reading. And um, we would share the scripture that a weakness could become a strength. And this promise from the Lord that their weakness could, in fact, become a strength, we would talk to them about that. And we would ask the missionaries to pray about it and to see if this is something that they felt like could happen in their life and have the faith for that. And we would just see miracle after miracle of these missionaries becoming strong readers and getting better. It was, it was amazing what we saw there. Such a beautiful thing. And we would be remiss if we didn't share the tenderness found in Ether chapter 12, verses 38 to 41, where Moroni bids farewell. And he says in these verses, they're beautiful and they're wonderful. And he says, to seek this Jesus. I'm going to just scroll there quickly. He tells them, he says that, um, and now I, Moroni, bid farewell. And he's going on and saying the things that he's going to head on. And then he said, I want you, and then he says, you know that I have seen Jesus and that he hath talked with me face to face and that he told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another man in mine own language concerning these things. And only a few have I written because of my weakness in writing. And I love this in verse 41. I would commend you, commend you to seek this Jesus. Mm. What more could he say to anyone that he cared about than to have them seek this Jesus? Reminds me that as a mother, a scripture I love that anchors me when I think about what I want most for my children. 
in Second Nephi twenty five twenty six. Mm-hmm. And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for remission of their sins, that I may teach my children to seek this Jesus. It's I a, love that. I do too. It's so great to have such a, a polarizing uh, direction to go for, especially in times of trouble and concern. You know, coming back to Ether in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, we read about, quote, a new Jerusalem and a house of Israel, close quote. Let me read that. Behold, Ether saw the days of Christ, and he spake concerning a new Jerusalem upon this land, and he also spake concerning the house of Israel. Now, we know from General Conference recently that this is a topic so near and dear to our prophet's heart. Sometimes this topic can feel overwhelming. I know it does to me. (laughs) It can feel heavy and doctrinal to a point that I just feel like, you know, this 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 is ground for the scholars to work. I loved it when President Nelson defined what it means to gather Israel. Quote, anytime you do anything that helps anyone on either side of the veil, take a step toward making covenants with God and receiving their essential baptismal and temple ordinances, you are helping to gather Israel. It is as simple as that. Close quote. So think about what, what does that look like in your everyday life? How do you help others make and keep covenants. One way is you do this when you conduct family scripture study or hold family prayer or show examples of patience towards others. I love how President Nelson sums it up. Quote, it is as simple as that. Close quote. That's wonderful. It is because it can feel like a complex thing, the gathering of Israel. But it's not. It's 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 all the things we do every day, um, both for our families on this side of the veil and on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ether chapter 13, verse 10, we continue with this subject. And it says, And then cometh the new Jerusalem, and blessed are they who dwell therein. For it is they whose garments are white through the blood of the Lamb. And they are they who are numbered among the remnant of the seed of Joseph. So we come back to Israel who were of the house of Israel. What a sweet blessing it was to have President Nelson emphasize an important definition during this most recent conference on what the word Israel means. Mm. He shared that he learned recently through a few Hebrew scholars um, that the meaning for the term Israel is to let God prevail. He then went on to show examples of what it means to let God prevail in our lives. It was, it was amazing what he shared. I mean, I, I like wanted to put it in vinyl all over my house, let God prevail, you know, to just remember this. Um, I know that this statement has provided great power and peace in my life. There seems to be no situation beyond the reach of the comfort that saying this can bring to me, let God prevail. Yeah. For some reason it makes Everything seem okay. Yes. You know, it's interesting as we study this, I'm struck as to what uh, a seer that President Nelson is, as he's truly brought this to light. For You know, it was pointed out to me that if you look in the Bible dictionary under Israel, using the Gospel Library app, it says, quote, one who prevails with God or let God prevail. Now, maybe you might think that you know, the folks at church headquarters were really on the ball at getting this in the app so quickly right after President Nelson's conference talk. 
But you know, I pulled out my Bible dictionary from the scriptures that I used on my mission uh, back in 1986. <laughs> and I'd invite all of you to do the same. Look up in the Bible that you have, the oldest Bible that you have, confined in your home. And as you look up Israel in the Bible dictionary, in the one that I see that's copyrighted in 1984, it says, one who prevails with God or let God prevail. It was right there. It was right there all <laughs> along. And I, I, I don't know how many times I've looked through the Bible dictionary. You maybe even studied the topic of Israel. Why did I not see this? Well, it just bears testimony that the guidance has been there all along. Yet it took the power of a seer, President Nelson, to help me more clearly understand what's being discussed when you read about preparing for a new Jerusalem and the gathering of Israel that we are to become a people that will let God prevail in our lives. I just think that's so powerful and so beautiful and such a testament that these are divine uh, leaders that we're following. And what a comfort it's bringing to so many Latter-day Saints that to, to, to think on that and to ponder on what it means to let God prevail in mm-hmm. our lives. As President Nelson continued to teach us about letting God prevail, he talks about the difference between letting God prevail and being myopic. You know, it's just essentially our ability to see the forest from the trees. And when we're myopic, we're so hyper-focused on one yeah. thing that yeah, we just one thing. that we don't see things in a let God prevail perspective or in an eternal perspective. Reminds me of somebody in our family. Yes, me too. It re- <laughs> we have a son, David, and David has autism. Very high-functioning autism, but he does have autism. And um, his... His life is very myopic. Yeah, he sees things one way. <laughs> and, you know, like with all of this COVID stuff where people are concerned with so many global big pieces of, of COVID, David at the moment is still very upset that he couldn't go trick-or-treating because of COVID. And COVID needs to be over before next year so he can go trick-or-treating. Mm-hmm. And um, I often find myself trying to comfort David by saying things like, but David, we did get to have a really fun dinner or you still got to wear your costume. Or and even I say bigger things to him like, but we're safe in our home and we get to be together as a family. And as I think about this, I am reminded myself of the need to step back and not focus so much on the tragedies and disappointments right in front of me, but to see the bigger picture to see opportunities I've had for growth at this time, to see the power of hope in my life in a whole new way, that it truly has been an anchor to my soul. This hope has been an anchor to my soul over these past several months. And I'm reminded through the eyes of this child, the power that comes as we let God prevail. Yeah. We really do learn a lot from our sweet boy, don't we? We do. And all of our children. Yeah. And we, we learn a lot through this reading assignment in Ether. You know, it just reminds me yet again that the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ and of the truths that we can find in there and the guidance that that can be relevant for us in our day and our time. We've enjoyed this opportunity to share some thoughts with you today. Katie and I hope that they will bring you uh, comfort and guidance as you go about your days and as you let God prevail in your life. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day.